Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we wanted to kick off a series examining uh, something I recently became interested in due to a, a specific historical anecdote, which we're going to get to in a, uh, maybe a later part in this series. But, uh, but we're kicking off a series on a very common belief across many human cultures throughout history, the belief that you can heal your body or purge your sicknesses by bathing or soaking in water, especially in certain places containing special waters, but in many cases just by bathing in waters or waters of a certain temperature. Yeah, this is, I think, a great topic because uh, it, it relates to something that everyone has experience with, which is soaking in water, cold or hot. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the feeling of feeling uh, restored uh, by such practices. Um, but then there's a, there, it covers a lot of ground as well. Uh, we can go back in time. We can go look at different uh, views, both scientific and um, superstitious, about what's exactly going on. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's maybe worthwhile to just start off with just a little general information about uh, bathing itself. Um, and for this, I turn to a book that I ha I, I've had on the shelf for a long time uh, and I occasionally turn back to. Uh, I remember I, I read it in full when it first came out, but it's from uh, the Oxford University Press titled Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity by Virginia Smith. I brought it up at least in passing on the show uh, many times because uh, I think one of the interesting things about this book is that it looks just generally uh, an overview at uh, the history in human culture of, on one hand, hygiene and on the other hand, purity. Uh, and how these become intertwined, and how there's this this uh, this understanding that that cleaning yourself, grooming yourself, uh, applying cosmetics and whatnot, that it is a way of, um, in many cases, it seems to be a way of inspiring some sort of health and cleanliness and hygiene. But also, we have all these other ideas that get built up with it as well. 
Well, yeah, bathing has a lot of symbolic loading in human culture. And I would imagine that kind of thing goes way, way back, uh, especially because even outside the context of bathing, water just has a lot of symbolic loading in human culture. Yes, absolutely. And Smith goes into it a lot, uh, quite a bit in this book. Um, So our prehistoric ancestors would have obviously valued grooming, uh, grooming being distinct uh, somewhat from uh, from bathing for our purposes here, uh, but they would have groomed in the same way that various other primate relatives do. And kind of a footnote here, yes, there are certainly primates that engage in something a little more like bathing, setting in, in pools and all. We might have to come back to that and, and look at those behaviors in particular. But when it comes to water, uh, the only real requirement, Smith points out, uh, for human beings is fresh drinking water. Uh, so we might swim in water, we might fish in water. There are certainly other things we might do in and around water. But we don't need to actually have baths. We don't need to immerse ourselves in water. But we found water. Uh, Mm -hmm. We inevitably were curious about water. And so nomadic Neolithic tribal groups inevitably discovered all kinds of natural waters, including cold water springs, rivers, and lakes. And they inevitably developed ideas about their healing properties. And so these waters, these would be sources of fresh drinking water, uh, maybe fishing waters in some cases, but you could also engage in soothing and hygienic washing or immersion in these waters. And those are just the cold waters to consider because on top of that, then we have the naturally heated waters, uh, hot springs and so forth, which would have seemed even more miraculous uh, if they were discovered. I mean, can you imagine if you'd never encountered hot springs before or even if you knew hot springs existed, but you could only have access to hot water like this uh, naturally occurring, you know, once a year, twice a year, depending on what your, your, uh, your, your cycle of moving around might be. Hmm. And hot springs occur, occur around the world. And, um, and Smith points out, quote, and hot springs seem to have played a significant role in human settlement patterns. Quote, for instance, many, if not most, of the highly decorated Upper Paleolithic sacred cave systems in the French Pyrenees and the Cantabrian Mountains of northern Spain are within walking distance of important hot spring sites, also later exploited by the Romans. That is interesting. I'd never read that before. So there is a correlation between evidence of habitation uh, by, by prehistoric peoples and proximity to hot springs. Yeah, and I think I've encountered this in other sources as well, making the argument that as, as these peoples inevitably moved around in order to survive and um, and you know follow their food sources, uh, if there there was a hot spring in proximity uh, to where they might stay, all the better. If there's a hot spring on the way of point A to point B, all the better. Now, it's probably difficult to figure out at what point uh, immersion in these waters would have taken on cultural associations with healing or with wellness of the body in uh, because, you know, use of those sources could also just be for relaxation, for recreation or for hygiene. Right, right. But then, of course, in the human mind and the human imagination, how quickly do any of those categories potentially touch on the sacred, right? Yeah. Uh, when does relaxation then become meditation? When does hygiene become purity, etc.? So Smith writes that washing and bathing properly likely began during the Neolithic period and late Neolithic technology tackled the problems of water heating, storage, and draining as they took the experience of these baths out of their natural environment during stretches of greater stability, prosperity, and surplus. 
And so a, a true culture of bathing evolves, as do various ideas about the benefits of bathing. Uh, and again, you can this kind of runs the gamut. You can imagine it being uh, just uh, entirely subjective experiences, uh, actual hygienic value, and then supernatural ideas and everything in between. Smith also points out that it connects with a very old notion uh, that the human body is unfinished and that it is left to us to clothe, adorn, groom, and apply cosmetics in order to finish ourselves to a level that meets individual and or cultural expectations. And this is an idea uh, that the author comes back to again and again. Uh, and, and on one hand, it might seem like an overstatement of the obvious. Like if I'm, you know, you wake up in the morning, you're not fully ready or, you know, you're naked, you're not fully prepared for the world. But this takes it a step, uh, a step further, considering the idea that you, you are not finished until you have done these things. Like, like there's sort of a base level of who you are and what a human being is, but then you, there has to be this cultural extension to meet this ideal or as ideal of a self as one can achieve in the uh, sort of real world. This raises a really interesting idea that I don't think I'd ever considered before, which is that, in a sense, you could think of bathing as a form of body modification. So in its natural state, just living your life, your body is going to be covered in various substances and, uh, you know, uh, bits of uh, dust and dirt from the environment and with oils that are naturally coming from your skin and all the other things that accumulate through living your life. By bathing and removing those things from the outer layer of your skin, you are in a way changing yourself, uh, much in the same way that somebody might be changing themselves by, say, applying a tattoo or anything like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, without even getting into the higher levels of of uh, tattoos and cosmetics, like just altering your body hair uh, changes your appearance. But also, as, as pointed out, and we'll get to this example in a bit, like there are cases where hair removal has an impact then on the, the potentiality for lice. Uh, so you are potentially augmenting your parasite load, which is not something you need bathing and, and uh, any kind of hygiene culture for. Obviously, uh, mere grooming in non-human animals also uh, can, uh, can do the same thing. And many other you know, animals have some sort of a, of a, uh, of a parasite to regulation practice in their, uh, in their habits. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's fascinating to think about all of this. And I feel like you can see the basic template of healing waters in a refreshing hot shower or bath and all of this. So the experience relaxes or perks you up. It's hygienic, but there is also this long human history, again, of associating physical hygiene with spiritual purity. And in bathing our incomplete body, we elevate it to a level at least just beyond the naturally occurring world, if not like maybe a few steps beyond the natural world. And we feel restored. We feel capable of dealing with... Uh, uh, I guess, life in general, if not particular obstacles. Well, yes. And when it comes specifically to uh, hot waters, this is not based on any kind of scientific theory I'm aware of. But I just I, I personally have thought before that uh, it seems to me there is a correlation between visible rising gases or visible amounts of uh, particle matter rising in the air and uh, spiritual beliefs or beliefs about uh, about sort of hidden mechanisms of power. So think about how many uh, religious rituals or beliefs about hidden mechanisms of power are associated with smoke or steam or anything else that you see rising and floating through the air. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's a short step between so many things about about bathing in hot or cold waters uh, uh, to, to get to some sort of a, a spiritual interpretation or some sort of tradition of sacred waters. Like I was, I was just thinking about this. You know, you get into either cold water or hotter water, warm water to hot water, and one of the things you're going to experience is you, you're going to have sort of a full body experience of that cold or of that heat. And it's like literally going to put you back into the experience of your body more. You know, you're going to be, you're going to at least have a better shot at experiencing the now just because the, the ambient temperature touching your entire uh, skin is not just air temperature. Now, one problem we're going to encounter in the series, since we're, we're talking about beliefs about the healing power of immersion in water, is that uh, this subject has the potential to be somewhat confusing because it touches on many different related, sometimes overlapping beliefs and practices, both uh, supernatural and natural, both ancient and modern, both outlandish and mundane. Uh, so to sort out a few common terms you might encounter in this area, especially in uh, the use of immersion in water as it is practiced today in uh, alternative medicine or even in uh, uh, standard medicine, you've got the term hydrotherapy. Uh, this is a general umbrella term that includes lots of different kinds of treatments, the unifying feature of which seems to me to be the application of water to the outside of the body. So many things that are called hydrotherapy involve Im immersion in water or somehow applying water to the outside of the body, maybe by massage or spraying of some kind. The specific term aquatic therapy seems more often, as best I can tell, to refer to a type of physical therapy involving exercises you do while immersed in water. And it seems to me that hydrotherapy is, again, a potentially confusing term uh, because it encompasses so much and includes uh, some practices which seem to me to be uh, pretty strongly supported by empirical evidence, maybe uh, certain types of physical therapy involving exercises done underwater. But it also includes all kinds of therapies that seem to me obviously not to be supported by strong evidence, and then others which are somewhere in between, maybe where the evidence is somewhat ambiguous. Yeah, in Smith's book, uh, the author points out that the, the term hydrotherapy is usually linked to 18th and 19th century European health trends, uh, but then these trends go in and out of fad, uh, even into more modern times. So, uh, so if, if you're seeing it used in like literature for some sort of a health or wellness business, they're probably not using it in the 18th or 19th century uh, sense of it. But they may, it still be maybe part of that fad. There may be some similar ideas that are tied up in it. Yes. Now, there are also much more specific terms, such as the term balneotherapy, B-A-L-N-E-O, balneotherapy, which is specifically the treatment of disease by bathing or soaking, often in specific types or sources of water, such as mineral springs. Yeah, and Smith dates uh, balneology back at least to the ancient Greeks. Uh, it's something that's like documented by Homer. Uh, but was was likely centuries old by that point, even influenced by various cultures. 
Yeah. And then you've got other things like uh, thalassotherapy. This is treatment of disease with seawater. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that apparently Pliny the Elder was a fan of. We'll get to that a little bit later in this episode. But, you know, Pliny the Elder was like, there is nothing better for health than salt from seawater and sun. Did we we did an older episode about drinking seawater, uh, didn't we? And we touched yes. on some of these these uh, these fads. Basically, don't don't actually do it. Don't go drink a bunch of seawater no, just because you heard it casually mentioned. Right. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in this series, even though we will inevitably brush up against related topics, we're going to try to focus mainly on various balneotherapeutic beliefs and legends, beliefs about the healing powers of soaking or bathing, uh, and especially the belief that there are specific places uh, with waters that heal when you bathe or soak in them. And beyond exploring these legends themselves, I'm interested in the question, are there any cases where there's empirical evidence that soaking or bathing can actually have a healing effect? And if so, how does that work? Hmm. All right, let's get into ancient myths and legends a little bit here to sort of lay some of the groundwork. It's kind of a, an interesting place to look at in times where, where the history sort of breaks down and look at some sort of general ideas of, uh, about where some of these ideas came from. Uh, and, and their importance uh, to uh, especially to ancient peoples. So uh, just concerning Greek myth, uh, Smith points out that the gods Apollo and Artemis were closely associated with sacred cold springs. But then, uh, to me anyway, a kind of unexpected figure emerges as kind of a hot spring and um, hydraulics technology hero. I was not expecting to think about Hercules or Heracles in this regard. 
Oh, the Heracles is kind of a hot spring mascot in some cases. Yeah, hot springs, but also just like harnessing the power of water. Um, hmm. So um, he is associated with the invention of hot springs in Greek tradition. Uh, this is after he was thrown into the pool at Thermopylae and regained his strength following the completion of his labors. Uh, strong association here between virility and hot springs, apparently. Uh, these hot sulfur springs in particular were also considered a gateway to the realm of Hades. Now, as for other myths uh, about uh, Heracles and water, I mean, I think the one that should come to everyone's mind, in part because we talked about it on Weird Al Cinema, if you listen to our Weird Al Cinema episodes, is the cleaning of the Aegean stables, the, the foulest stables in all the land. This is one of the, uh, the, the, uh, the challenges that Hercules had to deal with. This was, uh, uh, of course, was one of his labors. And uh, how does he clean them out? Uh, well, he just redirects a river through them. That's smart thinking. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I never really thought about it too much. I just figured, well, this is the kind of thing that a very strong but a very clever hero would do, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, you think about redirecting uh, rivers and, and, and all. You're getting into, like, the, the, the work of, uh, of canals and ultimately hydraulic technology. Though, actually, when you think about it, I mean, if you've ever observed what happens when floodwaters go through a building, they do not actually clean it out. <laughs> they, they, yeah. they make it quite filthy. Right, right. But nowadays, if you're cleaning out stables, you're probably using redirected water one way or another mm -hmm. uh, in the process. Even if you're not just absolutely hosing everything out, you know, you're having to use other tools, etc. Now, Heracles slash Hercules also has some other encounters with various river gods and, uh, and, and certainly water entities. But the other big one from the labors is the slaying of the Hydra, which was a water monster. Hmm. And uh, so this connection is not lost on, on, on other scholars. I ran across a paper titled Heracles and Hydraulics by J.V. Luce from 2006. And this paper points out that both the stables and the hydra are essentially hydraulic labors. And the author contends that there is a connection here between um, Heracles and late uh, Helladic water technology and water management. So it's almost like we could think of him as kind of the kind of like a, a an ancient Greek saint of uh, of water technology. Wow, they're seeing Hercules in a whole new way. He's the king of wet. Yeah. Anyway, going back to Smith though, you have you also just have to realize yeah, you have various ancient cultures that prized both naturally occurring hot and cold springs and or the utilization and development of technologies to artificially recreate these experiences in the home or in, you know, some homes or adjacent to the home or in some sort of communal setting. Um, and, uh, you know, I would, I would refer back to some of our invention episodes that deal with um, various hydraulic technologies and uh, plumbing and so forth. And inevitably, you know, if you, you, you would probably be surprised at just how far back some examples of these technologies really go. Smith also shares a, a couple of great examples that, uh, that uh, in the book uh, related to divine baths of the ancient world. Uh, so these, uh, again, are not, we're not necessarily talk, talking about uh, naturally occurring waters here. We're talking about some sort of a prepared water, or in some cases, it's not even something in the real world. It's just, again, purely uh, getting into religion and mythology. Uh, but first of all, in, in ancient Egypt, ancient Egyptian priests who, um, along with keeping their bodies shaved, and this had to do with, with lice apparently, and oiled, also bathed in cold water twice each day and twice each night to help maintain this kind of ideal higher body that befit one in contact with the divine. 
if you're more familiar with uh, Bible traditions, those also mm-hmm. include various kinds of ritual bathing in preparation for, say, uh, entrance into the temple or something like that. Yeah, yeah. People are always having baths or getting their feet cleaned by Jesus. It, it's just, there's a lot of it. And there's so many examples from so many cultures, you know, because again, uh, these ideas of hygiene and purity become so uh, wound up with each other. Now, the Pharaoh himself didn't have to go through all of this, was not taking necessarily two cold baths a day and two at night, uh, but still certainly had an extremely high standard of personal grooming uh, and was purified via some sort of a bathing ritual at birth, at death, and then in the afterlife as well, according to their beliefs. So Smith writes that in the afterlife, it was said that he would be bathed, fumigated, shaved, and oiled by the goddess Newt, I believe. Smith doesn't specify the, the goddess, uh, but I believe it's Newt in this case. Mm-hmm. And this would not only clean, but revive him. Quote, he received his bones of metal and stretched out his indestructible limbs. His body came together and was entirely refashioned. Whoa. So that's that's a heck of a, a bath. It like physically reassembles your body into some sort of uh, uh, unbreakable form for the afterlife. And uh, you have uh, plenty of other examples of this, but just just one in passing here. Homer has a whole bit in the Iliad describing the goddess Hera cleaning herself, putting on cosmetics. So even the gods in uh, some traditions have to strive to achieve the finished body, just like mortals do. I guess they have a better starting place, but they still have to do things to reach this ideal level of godhood. Yeah, and speaking of uh, Homer and the Iliad, This brings us to the role of bathing and especially medicinal bathing in uh, Greek and Roman culture, which, uh, though by no means the only culture is to employ these uh, practices, we're lucky to have a lot of sources on. So I wanted to turn to a paper uh, called Water and Spas in the Classical World, published in the journal Medical History in 1990 by an author named Ralph Jackson. I looked him up. Jackson was a scholar uh, working at the time for the Department of Prehistoric and Romano-British Antiquities at the British Museum. Mm -hmm. And it might not come as a surprise to listeners here that one major source consulted on this matter is Pliny the Elder in his Natural (laughs) History, who in Book 31 writes, quote, Everywhere in many lands gush forth beneficent waters, here cold, there hot, there both, in some places tepid and lukewarm, promising relief to the sick. And so Jackson writes that in the first century CE, the time of Pliny's writing, Uh, The Roman Empire had many spas, which they called aqui, Uh, and uh, at the time this paper was published, there was thought to be written evidence of uh, references to roughly a hundred or so unique spa locations, places usually fed by natural springs. Many of these at the time of writing had not been physically located or excavated by by modern uh, scholars. At some Roman spa locations, we know where they are, though it seems the springs have run dry. At other places, there's basically been continuous usage since ancient times. I believe Smith, and this was a book from 2007, so I'm not sure where the uh, where the, the count still stands, but um, Smith writes that some 400 ma- major bath sites uh, from the from, from out the area outside of Rome had been found, uh, but still more, of course, were completely unearthed. Mm. 
So going into Jackson's overview of the, the Greek and Roman medicinal uses of water, he writes that uh, if you go the farthest back in Greek history to like the Homeric period, which is a literary period from uh, before the classical Greek period, bathing facilities were mainly associated at this point with just hygiene and comfort. So if you're a rich person, an important part of being a good host is providing bath waters for your guests. But by the time of the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, like the 5th to the 4th century BCE, it seems bathing had come to signify more than just cleanliness and comfort. Bathing was part of medicine. Uh, And so many Greeks of this period saw bathing, specifically the use of hot and cold bathwater, as a way to regulate the bodily humors. Now, we've gone into a lot more detail on humoral theory in the past in other episodes, uh, but in very short order, humorism is an obsolete medical theory that traced health and disease to the balance or proportion of four fluids, also known as humors, within the body. You had black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. This was thought to explain a range of facts about a person. Uh, And interesting note, there are still artifacts of this way of thinking in our language today. So when you Mm -hmm. maybe describe a person's uh, temperament as sanguine or as phlegmatic, you are referring to phlegm and uh, blood, blood, the sanguine uh, fluid. This is based on the humor theory of personality. So under the system, your personality or your, your current mood could be explained by humoral equilibrium. Maybe your depression is a result of too much black bile, etc. But diseases of the body, somatic diseases, could also be explained by an imbalance of these four fluids. And the four humors were each associated with various states of hot or cold and wet or dry. So, for example, yellow bile was hot and dry. Blood was hot and wet. Black bile was cold and dry. And phlegm was cold and wet. And according to some ancient Greek physicians like Hippocrates, one way to help regulate your humoral balance would be to heat the body, cool the body, moisten it or dry it. Yeah, and even today, you go to, to to any kind of like robust spa situation, you have various means at your disposal to uh, to to tinker with those settings, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you can tweak the knobs. Now, while the humoral framework may have occasionally produced apparent healings or apparently good results. We know today these probably would have been due to placebo effect or maybe in some cases just happy accidents. Uh, Humoral theory has no general factual basis. But this did not stop bathing from uh, becoming and remaining an extremely popular treatment for disease and ill health for centuries all throughout the classical Greek and Roman regions. Why would this be? Well, uh, Jackson offers an observation. This is not proof of exactly why it worked this way. But Jackson writes, quote, Baths were both pleasant and, by the Roman imperial period at least, comparatively freely available. So they were just pleasant. They're just nice. They felt good. And you could easily get to a bath. These are a couple of features shared by not all, but many popular alternative medical treatments to this day, you might notice. Like, there may be no real evidence that this essential oil has a direct mechanism of action against, I don't know, what it, your arthritis, but it's relatively cheap to get, uh, it's easy to get, and it smells nice, which makes you feel good. So, you know, that that it's not hard to see why it would be a popular treatment. Hmm. 
it also fit, I think we've talked about this before. It also checks off that box of something is happening. Yeah. Like a really strong smelling oil or mm-hmm. certainly just a, a, a very hot shower or very, or even just a very cold shower, et cetera. Like it, there's a certain shock to the system that occurs that, uh, that, that you, if you lean into any kind of expectation, well, then there you have it. There is the, that's surely the effect observed. Yeah, it makes you feel something different or sense something different, which helps create the feeling that something is happening in your body. Yeah. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the ancient Greeks and Romans had a number of different beliefs about the medicinal and therapeutic uses of baths, but just to cite a few examples featured in this paper, uh, warm water was often believed to help with the absorption of nutrients from food because it, quote, softened the bather's body. <laughs> I don't know why I found this image so funny, but I did. I was trying to think, why would you think of it that way, softening the body to absorb nutrients better? Uh, and I wondered, maybe this is similar to observing something from from food, like that kind of warm uh, concoctions or warm doughs tend to emulsify and absorb ingredients more easily. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Just speculating there. Then again, I don't know how cold their dough in ancient Rome would ever get. I mean, they didn't have refrigerators. Well, if you're if you're in water long enough, of course, you do get, um, you get kind of wrinkly, right? Yeah. It could maybe be seen as a softening of the skin, yeah. Uh, but also hot water baths were thought to uh, treat symptoms from pneumonia, including back and chest pain, to treat fatigue, headaches, and uh, trouble with urination to, to uh, encourage urination. But in, in Roman times, public baths were also important and complex community facilities. I think it's 
very important to understand the like the many different roles they combined and how important they were for a local community. Their function was at once hygienic, social, recreational, and medicinal. So according to Jackson, for example, you, you know, you might go to the baths for hygiene and grooming. So you're going to go there to wash your body. Of course, you can bathe in the water, but you can also get your skin scraped. They had these instruments called strigils where they like kind of uh, it wouldn't be exactly shaving, but kind of scraping you down with a blade to get like oil and dirt off your skin. Uh, and then they would, uh, you know, maybe apply a new perfumed oil to you. You could also get your hair taken care of. You could get unwanted hair removed. You might also go to this bath for exercise. So in a way, it'd be kind of like a gym. You also mm -hmm. go there to hang out and socialize with friends. You could get a massage or you could treat your diseases or get advice about diet or health. So it combines all these different things. It's got elements of a gym, a barbershop, like a YMCA with a pool uh, and, and hot tubs. It's got a, a hospital or a clinic uh, and, and a public bathing facility just all in, together into one. Yeah, for many people, it becomes just a, a center of, of their social life. I remember we did an invention episode about the uh, invention of toilets. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the really funny things was uh, the, the Roman facilities that had apparently just like social toilets where people would go, you know, sit on a latrine. But it's just a, a row of them all in a line where people would just hang out, I guess, and, and chat while they're pooping. <laughs> you know, I um, this this is I have nothing to back this up, but I, but I, I do wonder, like, maybe they had curtains and the curtains didn't survive. Like what would what would people make of a, of a bathroom today where the stalls had been removed? And they were like, they might think, well, look at this. They just had one toilet next to another. You just walk yeah. in and there are the toilets. Oh, maybe. I don't know. But I mean, probably, probably not. Probably not. But there are also many specific examples of ancient authors prescribing uh, hot or cold baths for different uh, medical complaints. So one figure uh, talked about in this paper is named Asclepiades, who was an ancient Greek physician who worked in Rome and lived from like the 120s BCE to about 40 BCE. And Asclepiades advised the use of baths as a treatment for the sick and preventative medicine for the healthy. And though it seems prescriptions for hot water baths were generally more common at the time, Asclepiades was uh, known for advising cold water, which uh, led Pliny the Elder to refer to him with the nickname the cold water giver. <laughs> One of his followers, uh, Antonius Musa, so this is a guy who came up in the school of Asclepiades, even famously treated the emperor, Caesar Augustus, with cold baths. And this is chronicled in Suetonius's uh, biography, Life of Augustus, in which he writes, and this is a translation by J.C. Rolfe, quote, in the course of his life, he suffered from several severe and dangerous illnesses, especially after the subjugation of Cantabria when he was in such a desperate plight from abscesses of the liver that he was forced to submit to an unprecedented and hazardous course of treatment. Since hot fomentations gave him no relief, he was led by the advice of his physician Antonius Musa to try cold ones. So he's getting cold baths for abscesses of the liver. And the use of this treatment by the emperor led to fame and riches for Antonius Musa and led the cold water treatment to become somewhat fashionable. Uh, in fact, this is another thing I think we can see patterns of today. So, you know, like uh, one celebrity gets some particular type of surgery or does some kind of health trend or something and it becomes fashionable. A bunch of other people want to pick up on it. 
And in the case of cold baths for the liver, some practitioners at the time even advised patients to bathe in cold water during the depths of winter. So they took it seriously. Oh, wow. On the other hand, you had the Roman physician Celsus, I think sometimes maybe pronounced Celsus, C-E-L-S-U-S, but I think those Roman C's are are supposed to be a hard K sound, so I'm going to say Celsus, recommended baths as a treatment for, quote, skin complaints, diseases of sinews, gout, wounds, digestive disorders, wasting diseases, eye diseases, and fevers, as well as in convalescence after surgery. And Celsus here did not agree with Asclepiades and Musa on cold baths for abscesses of the liver. Celsus recommended hot baths and said, quote, all cold things must be especially avoided. So you got different schools of thought. Hmm. There's also an ancient school of medicine at this time known as the Methodists, and this might be obvious, but no relation at all to the Christian denomination. They were just called Methodists. Uh, They were named after their supposed adherence to the method. They were fond of uh, recommending baths and mineral springs, not just for immersion, but also for drinking. And the Methodist idea of physiology seems a little hard to understand. I wasn't familiar with it before. I was reading and trying to put it together. Jackson explains it by saying that they classified diseases into either acute or chronic. So to an extent, we still do that today, but that they saw the cause of disease as stemming from either excessive constriction or excessive relaxation and that baths could be used to treat these states. So, for example, the Methodist physician named Soranus of Ephesus, who lived from the first to the second century CE, thought uh, baths were an important treatment for inducing relaxation in patients whose diseases were caused by too much constriction, and he also advised the use of hot baths for women in later stages of pregnancy. Now, most of what I've been talking about up to this point uh, has been focused on on uh, ancient Greek and Roman beliefs about the medicinal or therapeutic uses of hot or cold baths in general. But there were also beliefs about the special healing properties of specific waters, uh, the sites often called spas, such as sulfur springs, alum springs, bitumen springs, alkaline and acid springs, uh, as well as of seawater, which, as I mentioned earlier, plenty uh, endorsed as being being, you know, there's nothing more beneficial for the body than salt. And I think we're going to come back to more thoughts about these specific water sources and their associated spas in the next episode or later in the series. But I couldn't leave it off here without a taste of a brief reading from Pliny the Elder in the Natural History, Book 31, about people who take it a little too far, who get a little too excited about the alleged healing powers of the spa. So are you ready for this? Yes. Pliny writes, sulfur waters, however, are good for the sinews, alum waters for paralysis, and similar cases of collapse. Waters containing bitumen and soda, such as those of cutelia, are good for drinking and as a purge. Many people make a matter of boasting the great number of hours they can endure the heat of these sulfur waters, a very injurious practice, for one should remain in them a little longer than in the bath, afterwards rinse in cool, fresh water, and not go 
away without a rubbing of oil. The common people find these details irksome, and so there is no greater risk to health than this treatment, because an overpowering smell goes to the head, which sweats and is seized with chill, while the rest of the body is immersed. Those make a like mistake who boast of the great quantity they can drink. I have seen some already swollen with drinking to such an extent that their rings were covered by skin, since they could not void the vast amount of water they had swallowed. So it is not good to drink these waters without a frequent taste of salt. <laughs> it's back on the salt again. So that's the problem. People go into the spa, they're like, they sit in the sulfur water too long, it goes to their head, but then they're also like, I'm going to drink all this spa water. I'm going to drink so much that you won't be able to see my jewelry anymore. My rings will disappear between the swollen skin and the problem i didn't get some salt in between that's the problem i mean i love this because also there is some sound advice here i mean it obviously if you drink too much water uh that can hurt you yeah uh, and also if you stay in some sort of a hot tub or a sauna or a steam room situation longer than advised you can also uh run up against some ill consequences uh so it, you know at heart this is, there's some good advice here, just not necessarily a, a modern understanding of exactly what the risks are. No, I totally agree, actually. Plenty is giving sound advice. That is right. My sound advice, and this is YMCA advice, is don't get into a conversation with a talkative old fella uh, in the sauna because oh. that guy, no matter how nice he is, he can inevitably sustain uh, enhanced temperatures for far longer than you can. <laughs> And, uh, and it'll be harder and harder to tear yourself away as you become overheated and, <laughs> and while trying to remain uh, polite and nodding your head uh, to their stories. That is also sage advice of, a, if I may say, Plinian caliber. <laughs> but like I said, we'll come back to discuss some more uh, specific uh, mineral springs and spas and, and uh, uh, localized water traditions in the next episodes. Now, I do want to come back to Virginia Smith for just a little bit because um, the author has an entire chapter on the Roman baths. And I just wanted to run through some bits here that uh, may shed some additional light on some of what we've been talking about. Uh, first of all, uh, Smith writes that the Romans were heavily influenced by the Greek concept of the managed life, which seems to line up fairly closely with this idea of the finished body. But in both cases, Greeks and Romans, but especially the Romans, bathing was also part of politics and statecraft. Mm -hmm. So, again, uh, I mean, part of it comes down to, like, where are you hanging out? But also it gets tied up in these just ideas of, of culture. And with the Romans, uh, the Roman bath becomes part of uh, their civilizing process. Yes, I get the sense that for, for the Romans, like, having a good local bath uh, facility was part of kind of town pride. It was a part of like what made you show that your society was sophisticated and powerful. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Roman elite, they certainly had their baths and liked their baths, but they also somewhat erratically over time spent money on healthy services for the people that included public baths, along with other things like town doctors, sports programs, kind of getting, getting, getting into that, uh, what you're talking about with the idea of the Roman bath as being this gymnasium slash YMCA, uh, you know, and everything else. 
these programs, Smith uh, writes, would have uh, only impacted about a quarter of Roman imperial residents, those living in cities and regular bathers. So those two things had to line up. But that's still quite a lot of cleanliness for the time period. And Smith writes that, quote, urban Roman life would have been inconceivable and a lot more fetid and visibly filthy without the various public baths, latrines, fountains, and taps served by the Roman aqueducts. And that, of course, is uh, that's a whole issue in and of itself. Like to, to power all of this, uh, you, you need to be able to control the water. You need to be able to bring the water where you need it to be. And the aqueducts uh, were a, a huge engineering uh, victory on that front. Mm-hmm. Also, you need a good uh, you need a good sewer system. And uh, when they worked, the uh, uh, the cloaca or the Roman sewers were also an essential part of the system. This reminds me of our invention episode on the toilet. You know, when you're tracing the history of the flushing toilet, it's one thing to be able to supply it with water, quite another to have a good drainage or sewage system to back it up. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you could argue that the uh, when it comes to uh, waste disposal technology, the good drainage or sewer system is the more important element than the toilet itself. Yeah. So, uh, like, like we were saying, the, the baths were an essential part of Roman life. And Smith points out that, that yeah, in fact, if you look at, if there's a decline of the, the bath system in a given city, that's generally a sign of greater economic instability or some other kind of unrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you can use it as sort of the, you know, the litmus test for, for how, how life is going in that particular corner of the empire or the empire as a whole. Now, Smith notes that the main reason for the Roman public baths was, quote, pleasure, politics, and propaganda rather than disease prevention proper. But the hygienic impact, uh, while likely marginal, that that thin margin still might have been enough to tip the scales in public health. Okay, but this would be talking about its actual effect on health rather than perceived effect on health. Right, right. Like, yeah. like how for for all of this bathing and talk of the the humors, like was it actually making any kind of an impact on the overall health of a population? And so the probably not to a large degree, but the small degree to which it did have an impact, that might have been enough to say sort of keep a society like a, a little more healthy than normal, and maybe just on the the right side of uh, you know pandemic illness, that sort of thing. Hmm. And I don't, I don't know if we'll get into this uh, in the next uh, episode or not, but like another thing to consider with like the global history of bath cultures is that at times there, there does become a disease uh, fear regarding uh, these places. And sometimes there's a moral panic regarding these places. And mm-hmm. we see that played out with the popularity of, say, you know, spas and saunas throughout European history. Mm-hmm. Now, the Romans were apparently initially resistant to the Greek idea of the bath gymnasium. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, but they eventually gave in between 29 and 19 BCE, according to Smith. Uh, so whoever was uh, in the in Roman culture were saying, no, we should not have a gym at the bath. They were finally like, okay, that's fine. We can, we can have a gym at the baths. Uh, I found this really interesting. So uh, again, a lot of these, the Greek enthusiasm for for baths, this gets inherited and, 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 uh, and co-opted by the Romans. But the Romans were likely so gung-ho for all of this in part because of a pre-existing bath culture connected to the various volcanic hot springs on the Italian peninsula. Uh, yes. Okay. So here you see, we see connections, uh, causal connections between culture and geology. 
Yeah, and it's also an important reminder that even if we're talking about sort of like the the importance of Greek bath culture, Roman bath culture, and how these different cultures and spread to different areas, it's still not a situation where somebody like uh, Hercules is coming along and saying, hey, guys, I just invented something. Get this. What if you put your whole body in warm water? Like, and, and, and then everybody's mind is blown, you know? And no, it's, it's like the, these ideas would have been widespread already. So any place that suddenly encounters like the Roman idea of baths, it's not all completely new to them. There might be, it might, they might be stressing some things that were different. There might be some sort of wrapping for it. You know, these, let's say maybe the ideas of the humors or something to that effect. But just the idea of enjoying the benefits of, of a hot spring or a cold spring, those are likely already inherent in a given culture for one reason or another. But then there will also be different pre-existing bathing cultures as well. And Smith includes a nice example of this. So the Etruscans were apparently all about small half baths, and they didn't dig communal baths, even for like families. Uh, the Romans thought differently, though, and um, and so uh, and, and even with the Romans, though, you have the situation where they had to come around to fully accepting the idea of the Greek gymnasium bath. So, uh, even though everybody might generally be okay with the idea of uh, of bathing in hot water or bathing in cold water, there are going to be different ideas about particular benefits or how you should go about doing these things culturally. And then again, we get into the geography again, which sites are important, which sites are important within a given culture, and then which, which sites end up being co-opted by uh, cultures that, uh, you know, that take over a given area, invade a given area, or just over the long course of time become dominant in a period that once had different ideas. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to call it there for part one of the series, but we will be back next time to discuss more about the healing waters. Yeah, certainly in the meantime, if you have anything you want to write in about concerning uh, traditions of healing waters or just experiences with pleasant waters, uh, if you want to talk about um, uh, particularly great springs you've been to, that sort of thing, we're always interested in that. I don't know how much we'll be able to get into various cultures in the, uh, in the episode or episodes ahead on this topic. Uh, so, yeah, if there's something near and dear to your heart, write in. Uh, we'd love to talk about it on a listener mail episode. Those listener mail episodes, by the way, come out on Mondays. Our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Weird House Cinema on Fridays, we just take a little time to talk about a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. 
What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.